This is the Teachable Soul Podcast. Because we cannot possibly live long enough to make all the mistakes ourselves, let's take a few moments to learn from the mistakes of others. The Teachable Soul Podcast, where guests and listeners like you share stories of failure and teachable moments on the journey to success. Here's your host, Kat Daniels. Welcome to the Teachable Soul Podcast. I am your host, Kat Daniels, and today with me, I have the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Chris Justin. He quit his six-figure chemical engineering job to help the world transition to clean energy, and it was a total disaster. Despite a rough start, however, Chris has built a steady freelance marketing business and is the co-host of Run With It, which is a podcast that shares new business ideas from successful entrepreneurs. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, Kat. Really excited to talk with you. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. I'm super excited to talk with you as well. I am personally very passionate about clean energy and things like that. And my 12-year-old son even is as well. Um, And I have a feeling that he'll go down the engineering path. So I'm super excited to kind of talk to you about that that path that you started on originally um, and how you got there. So can you start by telling us what made you go down the chemical engineering path to begin with? Sure. That happened pretty much by accident. I was in the weightlifting room. Uh, I played football in in high school and one of the coaches asked me what my plans were for college. And I told him I wanted to be a business major. I'm very interested in business. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh no, you've got to go into engineering. You can always learn the business stuff later. Uh, But if you get a hard sciences degree, it's, uh, it's going to be more valuable for you down the line. So this was this was uh, right before I started school. I, I switched um, I switched majors in between being accepted into all the schools that I, I was accepted into, and and uh, showed up the first day as a mechanical engineering major. Did that for about a year. Realized that I actually don't have a, a big interest in mechanical engineering. I uh, had a uh, it was a, a scary time for me when I was thinking about my student loan debt. Yeah. I didn't have a ton of scholarships or I, I had some, uh, but still ended up graduating with about $75,000 in debt from a state school. I went to Penn State University mm. and I was seeing this happening when I was a sophomore and I was thinking, oh my God, I, I, I'm terrified. I need to actually be responsible for my education. I need to choose, uh, choose something that I'm excited about doing and spending 75 grand to, to learn about. Uh, at that time, I, I thought about switching to be an English major. I thought about switching to be a chemistry major. And eventually, I landed on chemical engineering. I was kind of a glutton for punishment. Chemistry was the the only subject my freshman year where I... It, it was my lowest performing subject. So ah. <laughs> it, it was one that made me really want to dig in and figure it out. And and yeah, that's how I, I got into it. Wow. That's crazy. So you kind of like went after a degree that you knew you were going to struggle through, but it was the one that you wanted to do. So you struggled through it anyways, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say um, I knew that I would be able to figure it out, but it was the most challenging path out of the ones that were obvious to me at that time. I was not well equipped to make a decision for what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I think most, most incoming, uh, incoming freshmen in college are in the same boat. Oh yeah, totally agree. Yeah. My brother and I have talked about this extensively and, you know, expecting an 18 year old to make a giant life decision as to what you want to do for the whole rest of your next 50 years is absolutely ridiculous. It's bonkers. Yeah. And it's only going to get crazier as the cost of, uh, of education goes up. It's been, I think college education has been increasing at a rate twice of uh, GDP. Mm -hmm. So it's just, would you trade 300 grand in 20 years to send your kids to a state school? Right. I I don't know. I mean, it depends on the degree, I guess, but I do think that at the uh, secondary education is right for disruption. Yeah. 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 I agree. I am glad. So I got my degree. My, I got a business degree, but I got mine online. Um, and I personally love doing it online, especially as a mom, um, you know, and a, and a military spouse. That's like super important to me because as a military spouse, getting a traditional degree is almost impossible to do 
unless you stay behind and and stay there to finish your degree, basically, while your spouse goes, you know, gallivanting about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome that those opportunities are available today and and you were able to take advantage of it. Yeah. And I actually think because of the, I've always been very disappointed about where workplaces stand with remote work in like the age of 2020. But I think that this whole quarantine thing is going to shift that heat, like an enormous amount. And I'm kind of excited for that, honestly. Definitely. You can see the difference in the way that in, in the way so many companies are thinking about uh, meetings. And I know that I have, even within the quarantine, people are adapting. I had um, someone schedule a meeting with me for 45 minutes to walk through some workflows that I created for them for a marketing campaign. And I recorded a three minute video and sent it to them. They watched mm-hmm. it a couple of times and they got it. <laughs> they, right? they were able to cancel the meeting. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. And that's exciting too, because there's so many meetings that like could have been emails and you know now they can be three minute videos instead of 45 minute meetings that's fantastic absolutely and also the time restrictions that people have during this pandemic it's it's causing people to be a little bit more creative Mm -hmm. um, with uh with how they get work done and also much more efficient in terms of hey do we actually really need that meaning because i've got to watch my kid or i've got to i've got to cook lunch i've got to do any of these other things that right that I'm just, you know, pressed for time for now. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to work in between life, you know, kind of thing or, or do life in between work, you know, whichever way you're, you're working there. Yeah, that's definitely. So I'm kind of excited for that, that shift because it's 2020, like we should definitely have more things be online that can be online. We have all this technology and abilities, you know, within the tip of our fingers and we don't, we barely use it enough, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But anywho, so how did you make the decision or why did you make the decision to move from your probably comfortable and and fairly easy, I don't know if it's easy, but comfortable at least, (laughs) chemical engineering job and and just quit? What happened? Yeah, that was a a big leap. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. It's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. I, I worked for an oil and gas company and that is very, it's at least on the surface, diametrically opposed from the values that I have. Yeah. Uh, I can't speak too ill of that. I met my wife there. She's still working for that company. Ah. So that's, uh, it's, and they are transitioning to, to Shell's credit. They're transitioning to cleaner fuels faster than the other oil and gas uh, majors out there. But from day one, I knew that, that I wanted to do something more aligned with my values. I, when I left Shell, I, Loved the work that I was doing. I really enjoyed the people I was working with, Mm -hmm. uh, the work itself, but the values weren't aligned. So I had kind of two out of the three important things to me in terms of, in terms of what makes work satisfying. Right. So I knew that I didn't want to do that forever. I, and I'd just been looking for, for an opportunity to, to jump ship and do something different. And that active jumping ship, it, was spurred by a live event that I went to. It was an in-person event in Mexico with uh, the foundation. It's an entrepreneurial startup platform that I was a member of. And that I had been a member for a couple of years at that point. And it was, it was helping me to uh, start looking for work part-time. And when I was at that event, I met this one guy, he was a, he was so free. <laughs> He's just very goofy, very much himself. Uh, and actually the thing that sold me on working with him, I, I ended up contacting him to, to work together. He um, was his dancing <laughs> like out on the dance floor. I was watching him I'm like, man, if someone could dance like that and he's like so successful with his business, it's just like, this guy doesn't care what people think about him. He's living the way that he wants to be living. Yeah. And I wanted that. I didn't want to go about living my life doing something for external validation or just for money or any of these other uh, non-internal metrics. Mm-hmm. So I really connected with this guy. He, um, in that Sunday after talking with him, I, I got home and I told my um, girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, that I thought that I wanted to, to quit and do a sales apprenticeship with this guy. 
So I uh, emailed him and I pitched him on the idea and he uh, was kind of taken aback. He was not expecting <laughs> that. He had never done anything like that before. He's also younger than me, which is, it's mm. kind of um, humbling to put myself in that position. But I, again, I was just very impressed with what he's done. Mm. So uh, we worked out, we worked out a deal. We were going to do uh, six months where I paid him, I think a thousand bucks a month to, um, to coach me, to mentor me in sales. Mm -hmm. And I, um, put in my two weeks notice the very next day. Um, uh, and at the end of that second week, I drove straight from new Orleans to Houston and, and, uh, moved in with him. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that was a that was a crazy time. <laughs> yeah, sounds a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as you talked about in the bio, it was kind of it was a disaster when I started out there. I I got to his place and I felt like it was I felt like his success had been a little misrepresented when mm. we had been talking. He uh, he had talked about how he was doing uh, I don't know thirty five or forty grand a, a month in sales and. Uh, he was living, he was living like a bachelor, yeah. um, which is, you know, it's fine. He's, he's a younger guy. I show, but when I got there, I, I distinctly remember him showing me the guest bedroom and it's filthy. There mm. were, there was some sort of bugs crawling all over the, the mattress. And oh, I was just dear. thinking to myself, like, what the hell did I get myself into here? This right? is, <laughs> I just, I, I quit this job. There's, it's a one way door. And, yeah. and, uh, here I am banking my, my life, like betting my life on this, uh, this kid who does not seem to have his together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, wow. That's, that would be, that would be shocking. So what did you do? Did you like turn around and run away? Because I think I probably would have. <laughs> I did not right away. I didn't want to. There was a lot of enthusiasm mm -hmm. and excitement at that time. Yeah. I didn't want to be rude, sure, uh, but more so, I I, uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to give it a fair shot. Maybe it's these appearances aren't what they seem, right? right? And maybe he actually did have his stuff together. Mm -hmm. So I went on. I went with him to to a couple of different sales calls. I um, watched what he was doing, and after about, I think it took about a month for me to realize, okay, this is this is not going to very quickly get me to where I want to be. And thankfully I had some other relationships that I developed during that time where I could lean on some other folks to mentor me. Mm. So I, um, um, what I, the ask that I had from this guy and I'm hesitant to use his name. So sorry about, I just keep calling him this, this guy. But, uh, the ask that I had for him was to train me in, in sales. He was, he, um, he was very good at it. Again, he sold me just from his dance moves. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But he, he didn't really have a plan for doing that. And we didn't really dedicate time to doing it uh, mm. together. And also the, the things that he was selling, it was even farther away from something that I was, that I wanted to do. I remember he was on a, a call and it was this older woman who, uh, didn't have a lot of money and he was trying to trying to sell her on some sort of real estate deal, I believe. And, uh, I just didn't feel good about it mm -hmm. to do that too. Even if I were to, to learn sales through that, through that channel, uh, that was not the way that I wanted to spend my time. So I, um, I backed out of that. I, I called him and told him, Hey, I don't think this is working. I'm going to stop. And that was that was a hard call to make because right. he had he had shifted his life to accommodate me as well, mm -hmm. right? He cleared out a spare bedroom. He didn't take on a roommate. He was planning on that that income for me for six months. We had agreed upon uh, mm -hmm. those terms. So, yeah, that was that was scary in itself. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that was kind of a, <laughs> a dark period. But still, it's no one is going to get you out of that hole besides yourself. So I, yeah. I uh, eventually I, I just did whatever I needed to do. I cold calling, emailing, um, acting as if until I got to the point where I built up, built up, um, a decent book of business and, 
it's just been, my skills have been growing since then. I've been, uh, been, yeah, really enjoying the work that I do for the most part at this time. Right. Well, that's awesome. And yeah, so now what you do is to, you help, you coach other people to kind of run a business where they can help the environment to some degree or, or with renewable energy or whatever. What, what exactly is it? If I were to describe it in uh, just a couple of words, I'd say I'm a marketing consultant. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't exclusively work with uh, clean energy businesses at this time, but the opportunity that I saw back in uh, 2015 was that solar energy installers, their, one of their biggest costs is acquiring customers. They would spend up to 2,500 bucks to acquire a customer. And mm-hmm. I thought that if I could get that down to 500 bucks, then that would be a tremendous value that I'd be providing to installers. They'd uh, have more solar on, on people's roofs and all would be good of the world. Right. The, uh, that was tough because their margins are so tight. Yeah. And I didn't really know what I was doing at that time. I, I was learning the skills of marketing mm-hmm. and that's, it's kind of, it's hard to cut your teeth on, uh, on uh, something like that in an industry where there's a lot of leeway for, yeah. for people to experiment and learn. So I started taking on clients in, in all sorts of industries. I worked with a dating coach. I worked with a swimming technology company. I, um, uh, commercial real estate investing, landscaping, uh, private aviation, uh, online education, all, all sorts of different companies um, mm-hmm. to, to figure it out. And yeah, I, I would love to work more within the clean energy space. I think that residential solar is still pretty tough to, yeah. um, to break into uh, mm-hmm. because the, the financials are still so thin. Yeah. There is there are opportunities to help folks in that industry, but yeah, that's that's the second pivot that I'm making now after after I'd quit. I I um, spent two years in the Philippines. I realize I'm <laughs> speeding through the bio here. I spent two years in the Philippines with my wife. That was an extremely lonely time. It was very difficult. My wife was traveling all the time for work, mm. and not only am I physically removed from friends and family, but the time difference made it really difficult to connect with people. It's 12 oh, yeah. hours different from, from Eastern time. Mm-hmm. So during those two years, I decided that I didn't want to do what I've been doing. I didn't want to just do freelance marketing by myself. And since yeah. then I've been partnering with people to launch different projects like the run with it podcast, um, which you talked about. That's a podcast where we, the the genesis for that is I had this idea that successful entrepreneurs often have a bunch of other ideas that they don't have time to do themselves. Oh, yeah. Why don't we get those ideas and share them with our listeners and encourage our listeners to to act on them? And people who act on ideas, that's the best resume that you could have for uh, an entrepreneur deciding on someone to partner with. So. Right. It, it's it's one thing to say, yeah, I would do that. It's another to have someone actually follow through on the five action steps that we tell them. Yeah. So someone who takes action like that, they prove to the entrepreneur that we have on our show that they could run a business. They just need a little bit of direction. And then ideally that entrepreneur would say, hey, let's, yeah, let's partner up. I'll, I'll provide some mentorship and we'll get this business going and everyone wins. Yeah, which is fantastic because as someone with a business degree who, you know, is my dream would be to run an empire, as I like to call it eventually. (laughs) That's a fantastic start for them to do. Um, For any entrepreneur, that's a a very, that's a fantastic opportunity. There's not, I don't know of, I mean, there's like, um, there's startup, what do you call those things? Uh, There's like groups or whatever that you can join where they'll, um, accelerators, Mm-hmm. There we go. There's accelerators and things like that, but it's not this. It's not the same as just one singular person being able to come to an entrepreneur with an idea and say, "Listen, I can do this. Let me just show you, and then take off with it." So your idea for this show is fantastic, anyway. But so yeah, and I think it it ties back into that education conversation we had earlier. I think apprenticeships yeah. are a great way of 
of sidestepping this extremely expensive mm -hmm. higher education model model. Absolutely. It's something that's been proven for centuries to work well and and there's a reason for that. Yep. Absolutely. There's, um, I used to work for briefly anyways, I worked in the technology industry and that's what they were doing. The, um, there's all these it companies, um, that only do it for like larger companies and whatnot. And that's exactly what they're doing. They just do apprenticeships because, um, one, they need so many people with soft skills where the it industry has a, 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 a lacking in that. It's some <laughs> yes, a lack in that. And, so they need somebody with soft skills. So they find somebody with soft skills first and they'll be like, I'll teach you the rest. Like as we go, just do what I need you to do. So, and that's a fantastic way for them to start. Cause the IT industry of course is a very, um, affluent place or can be, has the ability to be. Yeah. That's great. So you, you started this podcast though, because you were working originally in like your freelance industry with all of these other entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, I'd be working with different business owners. And similar to you, I, I want to build an empire. And I would be my own best consumer of this podcast. I wanted to hear from other entrepreneurs what kind of ideas they had and how they think about approaching them. Mm -hmm. So I was scratching my own itch. The uh, Even if no one were to listen to an episode, mm -hmm. I hope a lot of people do because I think that they're valuable. But even if no one were to, I find the conversations themselves incredibly valuable and the connections that I'm making with the guests that we have. So that's, uh, that's been something that's been incredibly fulfilling for me in its own right. Yeah, I feel the same. I was, I went on a kind of introspective journey and that's why I started this podcast as well. And I've talked to many coaches and, you know, things along the way, but it's, it's like, honestly, it's so much more for me and I hope it helps other people, but I'm doing great over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people resonate with that. People can tell when you're really enthusiastic about what mm -hmm. you're talking about and it just makes for better listening. So I yeah. think, uh, I think you're on to, onto something great with it. Thanks. Um, I think you are too. <laughs> I wanted to suggest a left turn topic that may tie into this conversation a little bit later in the hour, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. Go ahead. Okay. Something near and dear to my heart perfectionism. Ah, same. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so <all> I'll, <laughs> I'll go way back in terms of, this is probably the biggest lesson that I have been working on over the last several years. It's uh, but I have to go way back to tell you how it came about for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Perfectionism started for me when I was very young because I grew up in a, in a very racist town mm. and I couldn't really do anything about the color of my skin, of course, mm -hmm. right. uh, but I could change everything else about me. I could uh, be the best athlete that I could be. I could be uh, the smartest, uh, smartest kid in class. I could uh, say all the right things. I, I could just, uh, I wanted to eliminate every single other reason that someone could make fun of me. Um, and that was that you know, you can see how that leads into perfectionism. It helped a lot at that time. And it helped me get through some really challenging times. I probably had seven years of, of dealing with racist stuff where the worst thing that happened to me, someone threw, it wasn't, I mean, people have dealt with, with, uh, far worse things, but, uh, at one point I had rocks thrown at me. Um, and yeah, just every day, no one's standing up for me. It's just me. So I just, I, uh, tried to make myself perfect. Mm. Um, so I box. went through, go ahead. Fit into the box, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Fit into the box. I'm, my parents were both born in India. I, uh, and when someone would ask me what we had for dinner, for example, I, I remember lying and saying spaghetti and meatballs. Cause that was <laughs> like, that was a thing that came to mind. Yeah. We would have that occasionally, but if I'm going to say beef curry or something like that, that's, uh, that's just more reason for people to, to make fun of me. Yeah. So I carried that through for a very long time. And it's, uh, it's something that you can do for a little while, but I think it's incredibly toxic. It's an incredibly toxic way to live your life long term. Mm -hmm. What it created for me was being hypersensitive to any sort of defects in yourself. I'll use the word defect. It's not, I wouldn't call it that now if I were thinking about it, but, right. but, um, yeah, just focusing on the negative so, so much and focusing on it uh, 
internally, but that would also spill over to, to relationships, to friendships, to uh, romantic relationships. Uh, I was 10 times harder on myself than I was on others, but if, um, but it would still, it would still come out to, uh, to other people I'm around. So yeah, that's, uh, that's been something that I've been trying to unlearn. I very consciously believe that perfectionism is not the way to go and it's much better to, to act in a different way, which I can, <laughs> we can talk about what that looks like. I'm curious to hear what your struggle with perfectionism has been like as well. Ooh, so <laughs> it's funny. So, oh man. So when I started, when I originally went to start this podcast, I know myself and I wanted it to be perfect before I launched it. Um, but I had, because I had been, you know, reading or not reading, but like listening to, cause I, I do audiobooks because I had been listening to those and, and people like Gary V. I I had been ingesting a lot of things that basically said, don't worry about if it's perfect, you just do it, get it out there and you can adjust along the way. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I gave myself a deadline um, when it was going to be out by, and I only adjusted it once. And that was only because I had originally planned to <laughs> release the first episode on Super Bowl Sunday, which. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and especially for my family, because it was the, the Super Bowl where the Chiefs were playing in it. Nope, yep. Like not even my family would have listened to it <laughs> <laughs> because we're from Kansas City and my husband is from Kansas City. And I mean, nobody would have listened to it. So I did. I, I waited until the next week and I released it and it was fantastic. Um, and even looking back now, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I can go back and listen to the first episode or even social media posts. I, um, I have a friend helping me with social media now. And she was like, well, I went to go post this one thing, but I went to look at previous posts and there was like no hashtags, no nothing, no marketing basically at all. And I'm like, yeah, that was in the beginning. Just ignore that. Just redo it. It'll be fine. And so, I mean, it's, it's little things like that as well, which I actually appreciate now because I can see the progress. Yeah. And it's much more apparent. Um, but I, when I was, I mean, it started when I was young too, and for me, it's mostly about control, though. Um, mm -hmm. I, I didn't grow up in a racist town. I am white, but my parents are probably not as tolerant or were not as tolerant. My father is no longer with me, but um, or were not as tolerant as I think they should have been. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm aware that I grew up that way and very sheltered. Um, mm -hmm. they were also, my parents were also divorced from like, they divorced before I turned a year old. Oh, and wow. So I was kind of torn between them my whole life. And so for me, it's mostly about control and controlling mm -hmm. the environment so that it's to my liking or, or to things that I need. Um, because the opposite, you know, another aspect of this for me is people pleasing, you know, and mm -hmm. doing things for others that kind of keep the status quo type deal to where mm -hmm. I get yelled at or whatever I think is going to happen. That's probably not going to happen. So it's a lot of things, you know, perfectionism can check a lot of boxes for a lot of people, <laughs> I think. Yeah. And I think it's a, uh, that's a, a really important story to share as well, because it highlights again, that it's something that really helped you get through a difficult time. Yeah. So these behaviors that are maladaptive now, they served a purpose at least at one point. Mm -hmm. And it's important to acknowledge that and not just beat yourself up. Like, oh, this is dumb. Why am I, why am I a perfectionist still? Well, you, it really helped you get through a tough time and your body's built for survival. And if there's something that helped you survive, then it's going to want to go back to that. Precisely. Yeah. And I, I saw a post recently that was talking about um, labeling things like that as either supportive or unsupportive. Mm -hmm. because, you know, at one point in time it was supportive, but now it can be transformed into a thing that's unsupportive, but it's also not like, it's not a character flaw. Like there's nothing wrong with you at all. And it's not wrong. It's just no longer supporting you is all. Yeah. That's yeah. a really good way of putting it. Right. I know. I saw that. Yeah. I literally, I, I reposted it. I was like, this just 
changed my whole perspective on my life. I need to re- go rethink my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how does that, how has that worked out? Have you been able to completely change the way that you're thinking about it? Or is this still something that you're grappling with? That was uh, yesterday. So give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so you completely changed your life. Yes, I completely changed my life. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just, I mean, for me in that sense, it's, um, I'm also working on self-talk and how you talk to yourself, which mm-hmm. I'm preaching to my children because that's what you do. And so, <laughs> um, you know, I'm working on like being my own best friend and, and remembering that if I think something to myself or say something to myself, and even to my husband, I tell him this all the time, um, that, you know, you have to be kind to yourself when you talk to yourself, because otherwise like your thoughts, you know, if you have negative thoughts about yourself, then you're going to perpetuate that. Absolutely. Like outwardly. Yeah. 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 There are a couple really good books that come to mind as you're sharing that there's one by uh, David Burns called feeling good. I'm looking at it right now. And he has this framework for rewiring those negative thoughts of challenging them and, and rewiring them. And people think that's uh, the worst thing about the positive psychology movement is people people simplify it as just positive self talk, and it's so much deeper than that. It it can be, and it's it can be so much more powerful than that if you really dive into it. Uh, so what you're describing of of challenging those those uh, negative self talk that you, that negative self talk that you have, that's the way that you can you can at least pause that part of it. And then you can be proactive about, about adding positive self-talk and that actually makes a huge difference in your life. The second book that comes to mind is learned optimism by Martin Seligman. I don't know why this book isn't more famous (laughs) than it it is. I think it's incredible. It's game changing there. He goes through all the research for all these ways in which optimism actually makes uh, your life better, your relationships, your your work better. Uh, and this is not something that's just true for humans. It's true for, for uh, other animals as well. So I, I highly recommend checking those two books out as a, uh, as a reference for people who may be struggling with this. The other one that comes to mind in terms of those, those give you the background in terms of, um, of challenging the behavior. Mm-hmm. Then there are some that are really helpful in turning that into day-to-day action steps there's a book by Stephen Geis called how to be an imperfectionist. And that's something that I try and practice every now and then. Uh, Well, I try and practice it as much as I can. One of the, uh, one of the goals that I cheekily set for myself is to intentionally make 30% mistakes, for example. So if Mm -hmm. I'm, if I'm trying to release a podcast, uh, make my work 70% as good as it could be. And just in, in, do not go above that bar because if I do, it's at a point of diminishing returns and it's actually more detrimental to, to my work than if I were to try and you know, make it 95%. And it, it can be hard to actually follow through on that. It's uncomfortable to, mm-hmm. to intentionally make mistakes, maybe not even intentionally make mistakes, but to, uh, to ship things where you are imperfect. But this is something that you can desensitize yourself to right? If you're, and it's really easy to do. If you're sending a text message to a friend, uh, include a typo (laughs) as an example. And that's just, it's a tiny thing. They probably won't even notice it. You can blame it on autocorrect, even if you wanted to, but you, you just get used to that idea of not everything I do has to be perfect. And once you break that ice, then it's so freeing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the books that helped me, um, when I first started like this introspective journey. Um, the very first book that I read was the subtle art of not giving an F <laughs> yep. by Mark Manson. Um, and that kind of shifted the way that I thought about things, um, as well. And I really, um, appreciate that because as I said, like people pleasing and things like that were one of the things that I struggled with. Um, and when I was going through college, I learned about a, uh, a theory called egoism. And okay. I didn't understand it because I was so far down the people pleasing hole um, that it didn't, it literally, for, it took me so long to adjust. And finally, when I went through this class, I started understanding where it came from more and why and how someone could think that way. 
because it's for those who don't know, it's a theory basically about how and why everyone should be selfish and only do what the things are that they desire to do. But in the theory, it basically is talking about how everyone should do that because it kind of causes a ripple effect where if you do what makes you happy, then your happiness will allow everyone else around you to be happy. But also it makes it to where it doesn't take away from anyone else's happiness because you're happy Mm -hmm. from what I understood. Um, And so it's a, it's a very extreme, it's, it's that to an extreme. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm all about balance. So it's not like something I subscribe to or anything, but um, it, it was just a different way of thinking about something that opened my eyes a little bit to why, um, you know, I've had conversations with my sister who I think is a very, very intelligent woman. And she also thought the same way um, and that, sh- you know, neither of us could understand how anybody could ever think that being selfish would be a positive thing in any way, shape or form, um, because that's how we were, were raised. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, oh, now I get it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a, yeah, I think that's super important. Yeah. And yeah. and really the, the, um, the dose makes the poison as Tim Ferriss likes to say. Yes. So for someone who is very much on the selfless side, who always puts himself last, being more selfish and trying to be as selfish as you can be, you're probably not going to turn into a total jerk. You're probably yeah. not going to get to the point where you're, you know, you're cutting people off and you're not giving, you're not, you know, helping anybody. That's yeah. unlikely to happen. Yeah. Uh, and the analogy that really helped me visualize this is if someone had 104 degree fever and you're trying to cool them down uh, with ice packs, you wouldn't say, whoa, whoa, this person's going to get too cold. Now, mm-hmm. right? you, you would just say, no, we, we got to give them ice. And then if they, if for some reason they get too cold, then you can always course correct. Right. Exactly. Yep. So, um, yeah, it was the, it was the, it was that book. And then the other book that I have been reading is, um, Jen Sincero's how to be a badass or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one too. Have you read that one? I, uh, I've listened to that one and yeah, I, I think that's, there's so many ways to, to phrase this and it's valuable to, to try different approaches because one of them is going to resonate with you and stick. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember exactly. It, it was kind of all swirling together for me reading all these books, Same, but <laughs> yeah. I, I remember enjoying listening to that one. Yeah. I had, um, it's interesting too, because I, um, I'm in like a mom's entrepreneur Facebook group or whatever. And, uh, I mentioned that book and was like, you know, this is a really great book and I highly recommend it. And a couple of, I mean, there, there were a lot of people who agreed, but then there were actually a couple of people on there who disagreed. Um, and one lady was like, you know, I just, I tried to get into it and I couldn't, it just didn't do anything for me, but I loved the girl go wash your Facebook by, mm. I don't remember who it's by, but I'll put it in the, in the show notes whenever I, you know, post everything. And, um, I was like, yeah, that's funny. Cause I tried to read that one and I couldn't, I couldn't get into it. Like I didn't like it at all. And so it's just funny how, you know, different perspectives or, or different people can just enjoy different things, but get kind of the same, you know, ideas from it type deal. So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. That's why it's, it's, um, it's always hard to recommend books to everyone out there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I heard the term universal donor once, which I thought was brilliant for how you can describe books that you do think everyone could benefit with, I benefit from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would put learned optimism on that list, but maybe that's, <laughs> that's speaking. I'm sure there are people out there who would read this and be like, this is so boring. I'm not going to, I'm not getting any value of it out of it but mm-hmm. they may read uh, something else that just frames it slightly different way and, and be all about it. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that comes to mind for me with perfectionism, yeah. and uh, to me that's tied with procrastination, uh, two, uh, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. I view that now as living as a smaller version of myself and framing that way has, has helped me really find the energy to overcome it, to prioritize overcoming it. And what I mean by that is if I'm trying to be perfect, I will attempt fewer new things. 
like you described with your podcast, if you're attempt, if you wanted to be perfect with it, you would never, you would never release it. Exactly. So if you picture that playing out over the course of your life, consistently what you hear people saying at the end when they're on their deathbed is I wish I didn't care as much about what people thought. And that to me, that means being willing to, to be yourself and make mistakes in public and, and being okay with that and still accepting and loving yourself along the way. I, uh, the analogy that comes to mind for me (laughs) or the, the mental image is if you were an adult trying to learn how to ride a bike, you almost never see someone just fall off a bike as an adult, right? right? If they're just riding along, that would be ridiculous. And they'd be so embarrassed and, and they shouldn't be. Right? There's right. no reason to only attempt things that you already know how to do. If you're only going to do that, then if you play that out, it's going to be a shrinking life. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that's, uh, I can't, I was going to say earlier, but I forgot, but I can't tell you how many times in high school, um, I would write a whole paper or in college, even I would write a whole paper and like give myself plenty of time to do it and perfect it, you know, along the way. And I would literally 10 times out of 10, every time I did that, I would get a lower grade on that paper than if I rushed at the last second to do it. Yeah. Which is so crazy to me still. (laughs) And that's a great reminder that perfectionism doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Cause what was, I realized what was happening was that I was overthinking it basically. And, you know, things just needed to be simple. Um, you know, and, and simplicity, I think, wins out in the end because everybody kind of just needs things to be simple anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Totally agree. And so when you learned, uh, just sorry to go back, but when you learned about uh, when when did you realize that like perfectionism was kind of hindering you or, or making you smaller, as you said? That... It's tough to put an exact date on that. It was a slow exposure to the subject. The first time I heard that, it's like, oh, that's crazy. That's just people wanting to to coddle themselves and to to feel good about lower performance, right? mm. <laughs> like alpha male type response. Yeah. Uh, and over the years, you just keep seeing it over and over again, and you see people who are able to to uh, live without this burden that they're putting on themselves without berating themselves all the time and get more done. During my time at Shell, I remember during one of my performance reviews, it was summarized basically as, Chris, you do do excellent work. We just need to see more, more of it. And I realized that that was because, yeah, the the reports that I was creating or anything that I was doing had to be perfect. Mm. And that was... I mean, that was a very obvious, tangible example of it holding me back. Right. Yeah. So, it, yeah, just over the years, it it slowly was has been an unlearning process. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you have started the unlearning process. <laughs> that's <laughs> very uh, important start to being a teachable soul, you know. So um, were there any other teachable moments that you wanted to share? I think the the one that's most salient for me right now, it's again, another, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but another left turn here is it's in um, the political discourse that's going on today. Mm. I am a firm, I'm a big believer that the, the people who are most comfortable talking about politics online are the ones with the most extreme opinions. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who are controlling the conversation. And people, intelligent people, well-informed people who have, a, um, who have uh, valuable opinions aren't sharing them because they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be lumped in in the same category. They don't want to fight people. They don't want to they don't want to be stuck in some sort of conflict um, in Facebook conversations. Mm. And I, there's a, uh, there's a famous German poem that comes to mind. Uh, It's something along the lines of, well, (laughs) I'll I'll let you look it up, but uh, we can share in the links. But the, um, Mm. the synopsis is um, you need to speak up for what's right for yourself, for, for people who are being, um, 
hated on <laughs> uh, because they can't speak up for themselves. And ultimately it's going to, it's only going to get worse if the discourse is driven by, driven by people who, who have these extreme opinions. Mm. And the way that I've been challenging myself to do that ties into perfectionism is, is if you see something that is hateful, just call it out and say, Hey, it could be as simple as why do you think that? And mm -hmm. just making people pause and, and think, uh, think to themselves and have to articulate why they have this hateful view. It, it, um, often is enough to nip it in the bud. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good tip. I often find myself, um, the political discourse, um, has a tendency to make me angry and I feel powerless. Like I can't do anything about it because especially, you know, right now, just staying inside and being at home, there's actually nothing I can do. And so, um, other than like donate to some charity or not a charity, but a, some organization that, you know, helps with those things, but, um, there's not a lot I can do. And so I have a tendency to not follow a lot of it. Um, yeah. you know, I, I hear like highlight reels basically from, you know, other people or my husband or my mom or whatever, and even Facebook if something major happens, but, you know, just asking why. I think is a fantastic, I mean, I ask why I have learned to ask why to a lot of things, because it, even if you just go down the rabbit hole of why someone thinks the way that they do, that can lead to that person realizing that the way that they're thinking or whatever they just said, or whatever the case may be, isn't a hundred percent set in reality. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I think a lot of those, those very, those, when people get angry in politics online and start, you know, getting angry and talking to each other back and forth. And it's just, it, it's just, it gets out of hand. And so if you just stop and just say, but why do you think that you're absolutely right? That's a great way to just stop it because it'll stop pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So saying why is great. I also, this is a technique I learned at shell just mm -hmm. saying, ouch, or right. mm. some variation of that. It's like, Hey, yeah. what you said is, is hurtful to me. Yeah. My best friend is fits that category. And I know that it's extremely difficult for her to see posts like this. Uh, the words that you have have are having a negative impact on someone yeah. right now. People aren't hearing that. And mm -hmm. because they're not hearing it, it's, it's allowed to perpetuate. Yeah. Yeah, my husband and say my husband and I say things like that all the time. We're like words matter. Words matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it takes it takes courage to do it. it it's mm -hmm. I feel for people who um, who want to, but but yeah, feel scared about challenging family members or friends and pointing it out. And it's like any any muscle if you uh, if you practice it a little bit, it becomes easier to do. And mm -hmm. saying something like, hey, just trying to understand why why you're concerned with this. What's the what's the issue here? Uh, even that, forcing people to articulate it and step out of the raw emotion that they're using to to post these hateful content. Mm -hmm. uh, 90 plus percent of the time, they're going to respond. They're not going to respond in some sort of crazy way. They're not going to you know, no one's going to come burn your house down or, or something like that. You're, <laughs> right. you're safe, right? It's, it's an online forum. You can just walk away from it. But, but, um, just asking that question or saying like, ouch, that's, you know, why are you saying that? That's, that's hurtful to, mm -hmm. to me and to people like me. Um, yeah. Tying it back into my experience growing up. Right. I, if, um, one of the most painful things about growing up in that racist environment is it's not the racism itself, but also all of the people around me who did nothing as is happening for years. Oh, man, I just yeah, watched yeah. it and I'm just sitting there feeling so alone and it's demeaning and it's shameful in public. And even if just one out of 50 people stopped and said, Hey, leave them alone. Hey, <laughs> you don't need mm -hmm. to say that. Go, you know, go, go do whatever else. Right. Uh, and I just had reprieve for, five minutes, one day, uh, that example is like that. When people did do that stick with me still now, however many years later. Oh yeah. I bet. 
Well, and so uh, did you grow up in a small town? Uh, it was a suburb of Philly that, uh, that I experienced the brunt of the racism. Oh, interesting. Okay. I just, um, I grew up in a small town and I have found that small towns where there's not a lot to do, they tend to have more things like that happen because basically the only thing to do is to get into or cause trouble type thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's tough in those situations for, it's tough on both sides. I do empathize with people who, uh, who don't have exposure to people from uh, different backgrounds yeah. and the, um, the stereotypes that you hear again, if it's, if you're in this bubble where your uh, thoughts are going unchallenged and you don't have a counter example, it becomes really easy to perpetuate negative beliefs. Yeah. Well, and just too, like if you're, if you grew up, Um, If you were a white person who grew up in a family who was, you know, outwardly racist, and then you as a child grew up with that, that becomes reality to you, basically, because that was your childhood. And even if you don't understand fully why you believe the way you do, it is reality in your head, because that's how you grew up and you don't know anything else. You know, just like you said, they haven't been exposed Two other things. I have I have actually met people though who, um, which gives me a little bit of hope in this scenario because <laughs> um, I've met people who you know grew up in small towns and grew up in families who were racist and then they grow up and go to college um, far far away you know usually states away and then they start you know kind of opening their eyes a little bit slowly but surely and then they go you know even overseas or just across the country to another part of the country again, you know, and then they start realizing that what they were taught or what they believe was just because that's what they were taught and that's what their parents knew. And that's, so therefore that's all they knew. So, yeah. Yeah. Exposure like that makes a huge difference for, for a lot of people. And I think this is something that one thing to give me hope here is, is, um, just from the rate interracial relationships um, mm-hmm. that I think in 50 years, this problem becomes much smaller, at least in the U S oh, yeah. hearing Katie, my wife often likes to cite the statistic that in the early 1990s, something like 15% or 10% of people would be comfortable if a family member were to, to date or marry outside their race. And mm-hmm. now it's, it's the opposite. It's like 90% of people would be okay with that. So it's been a tremendous change just in perspectives in that time. And as, as people see, as that becomes more of the norm, it's, it will get better. We're talking about things that we can do to accelerate that change, but it'll work out in 50 years, I think. Right. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I think it's, um, you know, the news stories that we see sometimes with instances like that, I think we're only seeing them because they, I'm hoping anyway, that we're only seeing them because they're, they're, they're the exception, not the rule now, but you know, it still makes big news because it doesn't happen very often. Definitely. And yeah, I find the news has a tendency to do that. Things that don't happen often tend to get in the news, you know, more so than regular everyday occurrences. So, yeah. And it is heartening to see people who are, who don't have skin in the game in that <laughs> they're not that ethnicity or that, that religion or that gender and who are fighting for people like that. So there's a lot to be, to be optimistic about. We need to encourage people like that and who act that way and, and uh, make them feel good about doing it and normalize that behavior. Oh Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely think it's normalizing the behavior because it's, it shouldn't be anything that anybody is like fighting to do for other people or whatever. Like we're just people. We all bleed the same. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So So that reminds me of the the last point that I thought would be interesting to talk about here a little bit. It's, um, it's safer to withhold love from people but it's far less mm-hmm. satisfying to live that way. Yes. That in, and oh. you can do that in the simplest ways. If you're walking down the street, I was thinking about this. It's, it's safer to not smile at someone and to turn your head 
but that just makes the world a colder, less enjoyable place to be in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I, um, I have two examples for that. If, if you'll allow me a question here. <laughs> um, so my, when I was in middle school, I was bullied, like to the point I told my parents, I would not go back to that middle school. And I had to change schools because otherwise next year I told them I was going to get kicked out for fighting literally everyone. <laughs> and <laughs> they were like, okay, we'll just change your school. No worries. Um, but then, so I went to the new school and it was a, it was a Baptist school. Like we had to wear uniforms and things like that. So it was very, very structured and it was nothing like the middle school I had been in. But when I went into high school, uh, we moved across to another state and I went into this high school thinking that I was going to be bullied and assuming that everyone was going to be similar or the same to how it was back in my small town in middle school. And I walked in, you know, and after like a couple days, nobody cared. And I was like invisible, basically. (laughs) Such a bigger school. It was right outside of Kansas City. Um, And so it just, it wasn't the same at all. But I had gone into it thinking, because I later found out that everybody in high school thought I was stuck Mm. up. Well, they probably stuck up because I went into it like with a face or with an air or, you know, body language, whatever the case may be with, I'm going to be tougher than everybody here. And I'm not, I don't think, but (laughs) (laughs) wasn't, but, uh, yeah. So I realized and, and learned that you can't walk into a situation assuming like protecting yourself like that. You know what I mean? Because you're going to walk out of it with less than if you would have walked into it with an open mind type deal. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's exactly it. And people connect with you less. You enjoy your time there less. It's, it's just worse Mm -hmm. all around. Uh, Again, that's something that served you in the past as you, as you use the terms supportive and unsupportive. So it was supportive when you needed that armor, Mm -hmm. but it's not now. Correct. Yep. And my husband and I have had conversations about that because he, um, he has told me in the past that I was too trusting of like just random strangers and that I was, you know, kind of implied that I was basically being a little bit naive in some instances. And I'm like, but that's because I've learned that I would rather go into things with an open mind and live my life with, you know, being accepting and, and open to others versus, you know, just walking up with a shield because I don't, I don't like doing that. Like it's not comfortable for me anymore and it doesn't serve me anymore. It's not supportive anymore. Yeah. I'd rather, you know, risk getting hurt because whatever hurt anybody is going to cause me is momentary and it's not going to last anyway, especially if, you know, once I've learned my lesson in that stance with that person, I'm obviously not going to do it again, but you know, to go to the next person who's a completely different person and expect the same thing. That's not, that's not how I want to live my life. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're exactly right with that. I, um, there's a, a viral video that I saw a couple of days ago, which I think is, is worth linking to. It's got grease stuck in my head. Now there are these two dads oh, who are lip syncing to grease and just dancing. And it's just, it's so, uh, heartwarming to watch. You just, you get so excited. You love it. And people, and also the comments are, are great as you're watching it. Uh, people are saying like, I want to be friends with these guys. I love these guys. Everyone responds so mm-hmm. positively to people who are just open like that and, and are clearly, oh, absolutely. Uh, clearly enjoying themselves, having a great time. You want to be around people like that. So maybe that yeah. wasn't cool in middle school and you'd get bullied for, mm-hmm. for being flamboyant or something like that. Uh, but that's what people, that makes the world a better place now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just like that guy going back to that guy that was dancing and he kind of won you over cause you wanted to be around. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good call back. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thanks. <laughs> so I, I know I said I had, that was the last one, but there is one final teachable, uh, lesson that sticks with me here that came up recently yes. that I'd like to share. And this is, mm-hmm. uh, it's something that came to me from getting things done. The famous book by David Allen, it's the two minute rule. And it's not the two minute rule as he describes it, which is if you're, if you're talking about a next task, if you, as you're writing your task lists and you look at your next action, if it, if you think it'll take less than two minutes to do, then you just do it. 
what I've found is on top of that, if you have these next actions listed and you're continually procrastinating on something that takes less than two minutes, that would take less than two minutes, that's probably one of the highest leverage things that you can do. It's, and it, it probably requires mm -hmm. a, a little bit of courage. That's the holdup. Uh, so those are the things mm -hmm. that you really need to hone in on and figure out what's going on. If you're trying to start a podcast, it may be, it may be asking for help from a mentor, from uh, someone who's mm -hmm. already been there before. It takes under two minutes to send that email. Uh, I recently asked my neighbor to, to help install the dishwasher. <laughs> That's something that I procrastinated on, but it's, it's like, this, this still takes me two minutes to send this text message. If I'm not doing it, it's because yeah. I'm scared. Right. That's a very good tip. Yeah. Another time tip that I use, um, my mom, she has an ability to psych herself out of things in her head like that. Like she'll look around and get very overwhelmed very easily. Um, and so one of the things that I've had to tell her to do is just set a timer for 15 minutes. And whatever you can get done, whatever it is, whatever you choose to do, start with one task and whatever you can get done within 15 minutes is just what gets done and then move on to the next one. And that gives you a deadline and it's 15 minutes. Like it's not that much of, that's not a lot of time. So, but you'd be surprised what you can actually get done in 15 minutes if you just start and do it. And so, yeah. That's great. It has any issues with that. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, me too. And it helps me too sometimes because if I'm procrastinating as well, I'll be like, all right, 15 minutes to get done whatever I can get done and whatever it is, I just, it, it finishes at 15 minutes and I will either move on or I can continue the task if I don't have anything else to do. But getting started is, you know, sometimes the hardest part. <laughs> I think the key thing there too, and I'm just picturing myself playing out this, is at the end of that right. 15 minutes, you have to feel good about the work that you did at that time. Because sometimes you can mm -hmm. open up a can of worms and you think, oh my God, now I've got 10 more tasks that I didn't even know that I had to do. And, and you feel bad about not addressing them. Uh, but mm -hmm. that's the opposite. <laughs> it's a terrible feedback loop to have. It's much better to just feel yeah. like I sat there for 15 minutes and, and I got done what I needed to get done during that time, or I got done as much as I could during that time and give yourself an A for that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. And yeah. Because, I mean, what happens for me often is I often get to the end of the 15 minutes and I'm like, whoa, I only got that done in 10 minutes. Wow. That was, look at me. Yeah. Whoa, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Also, I want to know, um, just for my own, because I'm curious, how many businesses have you, have you had actually succeed and like come off of your show? Run with it. That's a... That's a good question. A lot of them are in the early stages now. The show has been has been airing since uh, August of 2019. We've had mm -hmm. several uh, aspiring entrepreneurs reach out to us and right. look to get started on some of these ideas. Um, some of them take a little bit longer than others to get going. But yeah, I'd say mm -hmm. out of the 40 episodes or so, we've probably had, uh, I don't know, five different listeners reach out to us about different episodes and, and take some steps on them, That's awesome. um, which is, it's honestly, it's a fantastic opportunity for anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur and um, mm -hmm. can do with some mentorship. We're at a point now where we, we're going to work really hard to connect you with these entrepreneurs and, and help you succeed. And, there's not a lot of competition. If you take some action, you are very likely to be able to connect with, uh, with some of these folks. And we've had people like David Hauser. He, um, he created grasshopper and he ended up selling it for $170 million. No one has mm. taken action on the idea that he outlined there. Do you want to connect to David Hauser? Do you want to partner with someone who's been at that level, a nine figure business right. exit? That's uh, it's an incredible opportunity. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that episode now and see if that's <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories with us. These are incredibly valuable, I feel, and I'm glad that we were able to talk. And I cannot wait to share your uh, podcast with everybody else as well. And I hope, it, well, if anybody wants to hire you for marketing services, do you have a website, website specifically for that? Um, I am 
changing the branding that I've got right now associated with that. So there are a couple of ways that you can reach me. Probably the easiest for marketing consulting would be chris at solariety.com, S-O-L-A-R-I-E-T-Y.com. Uh, and if you okay. email me there, then yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. You could also reach me on the the podcast email, which would be chris at runwithit.fm. Perfect. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for coming on again. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. You have been listening to the Teachable Soul podcast. You can find us on any social media platform, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram as The Teachable Soul or on Twitter as Teachable Soul. Also, if you'd like to help support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash The Teachable Soul. You can also visit our website for more information at theteachablesoul.com. 